0: The stories we tell can change the world. So, what if your organization could tap into a team of professional storytellers to help amplify the good you're doing for people and planet? Good and Proper is an independent content and communications agency that works with B Corps, NGOs, and purpose-driven businesses to tell stories that drive positive social and environmental outcomes. Working with Good and Proper means harnessing the power of storytelling to spark meaningful change. Plus, I have a social mission that sees revenue redirected to a range of climate and community NGOs. Keen to talk? Email hello at goodandproper.co today.
1: In the village that we used to live in, relationships are organized around hierarchy, structures, institutions, religious institutions as they used to be, and roles were very clearly defined. Everybody knew what was their task. Everybody knew whose career mattered and who was going to wake up to feed the baby and who has a right to demand for sex and what the kids should be doing. That gave us in the realm of relationship a lot of clarity and a lot of certainty and just about zero freedom. We have shifted the model, shifted duty and obligation for options and choice. And all the big decisions that used to be made for us We now have to make them ourselves. What do I want to do? Where do I want to live? Is this good enough? Is this too bad to stay but too good to leave? You know, this whole relationship ambivalence. And that gives us a lot of freedom, but we are a lot more alone as well.
0: Yes, that is Esther Perel, the brilliant, wise, and joyful therapist whom millions of us have come to adore. She is the foremost expert on human relationships and sexuality right now on the planet, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Mating in Captivity, which shook the ground beneath us with the concept of erotic intelligence. Esther's is no doubt a name you're familiar with, and she was with us here in Melbourne in November, launching her new game, Where Should We Begin? Also, the title of her first podcast, which takes us into the therapy room, as Esther counsels real couples through the intimate and complicated details of the conflicts that have brought them to her door. Esther's follow-up to that was the podcast, How's Work, which explores the invisible forces that shape our workplace dynamics. She is a cultural force, a global icon, and this conversation with Barry is full of all of the rapturous insight we could have hoped for, and more.
2: Esther, thank you for joining us. Everyone, a round of applause, please, to welcome Esther Perel. (laughs) Thank you. It's only taken us three and
1: a half years with a few postponements. Yeah.
2: We had the most amazing conversation all those years ago for Dumbo Feather magazine. Mm -hmm. And today is lucky second go at talking to this magical human who I know has inspired all of our
1: lives. I'm happy you're here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. And thank you all. I mean, if you're here, it's because there's already a bit of a... Actually, maybe I ask, how many of you know nothing about me or the work or anything like that? It's totally fine. I just want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, they are. They exist. They exist. And then there are the sceptics. It's always good to acknowledge the sceptics. So,
2: so I would love to start there. What do you do when you're in front of a sceptic?
1: To disarm them, oh, Esther Perel style. I can tell you exactly because they, I have done it more than once. If a couple comes in, I ask, Did you both want to be here? And then I can ask, You know, was one of you seduced, forced, arm wrestled, whatever, to show up? And then I say, What's it like for you? And then they say, I don't believe in therapy. Or something like that. And then I say, I hope you really don't change your mind. This is not about changing your belief system. If it was helpful, you'll tell me I helped you or this was helpful and I'll be great. And then I get up and then I shake the hand and I say, I have tremendous respect for the skeptic. Because the one who is here because they believe in it or they've had it before or they know it, that's easy. The question I would like to ask you, the person who wanted to be here, is would you have been as open as your partner to show up in something that you utterly don't believe in? That kind of sets the point. It's very true. Instead of trying to convince the other that this is a good thing to do, ask yourself if you would have been amenable to actually follow somebody and show up in something that you really couldn't care less about. And so I highly respect the skeptic because I actually think that the skeptic is sometimes more open-minded than the person that is supposedly in the role of the open-minded. So how do we know?
2: How do we test ourselves? Because I'm super open-minded. I work from open mindset. I'm like, bring it on. But how do we actually
1: test the veracity of our own beliefs about ourselves? It's a lot of different things. But one thing is the ability to be able to hold multiple truths, Mm. including the ones that contradict with yours. Couples therapy is a notorious drop-off center where people bring somebody to you and just say, we have a problem, it's this person, (laughs) fix it, and I'll help you, I'll tell you everything I know, I'm I'm an expert on the other. So the first thing about the open-mindedness is actually the ability of people to sit down and say, here is what I do to fuck things up. That takes you a long way rather than here is everything my partner is doing to fuck things up. That's an old story. That doesn't mean the partner isn't doing things. It just doesn't move the story forward.
2: I love it because it's making me think about what my grandmother used to say, which is don't look at what he isn't because that's a really long Mm -hmm. list and I'm sure his is as long as yours. The second phrase
1: is the more important one. I once had a couple's therapist, because I've had my share of them too, you know, good, bad, and ugly. And he just threw a sentence out like that, out of the blue. And he said, couples, there's about 80 things they can disagree about. If they agree on four, they should consider themselves lucky. This was basically to say to us, shake out of your thing. But I like your grandmother's wisdom as well. I
2: think that in the world at the moment, we're becoming so alarmingly entrenched in our positions Mm. and what's harder staying spacious and generous and available in couples therapy or online or with anyone else who disagrees with our position how do we stay spacious and generous and generative when the world
1: needs it more than ever Mm. I had a conversation with Yuval Harari recently who wrote Sapiens and We talked for a good two and a half hours. The whole discussion was, of course, that I do the micro and he does the macro. And at one point I said, I've done couples therapy for more than 30 years. And what I can say is that couples therapists have a lot of experience working with polarized systems Mm. and polarized systems of people who once thought they were very united. And those are actually even more polarized you know, the inability of one person to even be able to consider the perspective of another, to see it as an attack on them, to see it as something they have to fend against and defend against, or they're going to just evaporate, you know, right on the spot, all of that. So we learn a lot about council culture. We learn a lot about polarization. We learn a lot about how difficult it is to tolerate somebody that is close to you and says things that you disagree with. Research basically says that you can tolerate 10 seconds. Hmm. That's three sentences of somebody saying stuff that you don't agree with before you either start to hyperventilate or to build in your rebuttal and you no longer listen. And if you then do this little exercise that you know that couples therapists use so often about reflective listening, it is fantastic to see how hard it is for people to repeat what was just said to them, even if it's one sentence, which they cannot tolerate.
2: You said that you've been to couples therapy yeah. with your husband. Yeah, of course. Do you just sit there in critical analysis <laughs> of the other analyst? Has anyone ever surprised you and yes. you've gone, very good? No, not in- any. <laughs>
1: No, not with that tone, but yes. Oh, meaning
2: I was being a bit superior?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can do that too. <laughs> when you finally have somebody that you feel gets you, yeah. that's a relief and you just feel like, oof, somebody who gets it, somebody who can hold me. And I used to sometimes think, oh, I have these people sometimes who say, you really made a difference, you changed things for me. And why can't I meet somebody who does that for me? Am I so difficult? And then, no, then at some point you meet someone who just basically organizes things the way that is helpful to you. And you say, okay, I finally found someone who I think is ahead of me and can make me feel like I can relax. I can give in to whatever it is that I need to address. And listen, couples therapy is a very recent field. It's a recent profession. I don't know if you know that. It wasn't important until recently because it didn't really matter if the couple got along or not. Because once you got together with somebody, you were stuck for life. And that was that. And if you didn't like it, maybe you could always hope for an early death <laughs> of your partner, preferably. You know? <laughs> but there it's was no exit. Of your partner. So there was no exit. So it didn't really matter if the couple did well or mm-hmm. not. They didn't get along, you went to talk to somebody else. Today, the survival of the family depends exclusively on the happiness of the couple, in the West at least. That has changed everything. So, the couple needs to get along or they won't be a family. There's no excommunication, there's no no fold divorce. So, that's how couples therapy emerges. And it is very challenging, it's a very difficult form of therapy, and it is unfortunately often useless. I'm sorry to say useless because sometimes people come past due date. Yeah. And its shelf life has expired. And sometimes because dyadic systems can really entrench you in such a place where you can't move it. You just cannot move it. If you are alone, you can, of course, put the responsibility on the world, on society, on your parents. You can find other people to hold accountable. But nothing is as seductive as you think. When I met you, I was happy because of you. And now I am miserable because of you. And the more miserable I am, the more I need you to change. And the less you change, the more resentful I become. And the more resentful I become and the less likely you are to change. And the less likely you are to change and the more I depend on you to do the changing because otherwise I will become even more miserable. And I am caught in this hostile dependence like that for decades. And it's extremely hard to undo.
2: Yeah, it's an awful moment. It's a hideous moment when you realize that you're just unhappy. That you're just? Unhappy in yourself. Like you can't pass the blame onto the other person or the other... And you have to take that accountability onto yourself. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's much easier to do this than to do that. This is the shorter route to change. Yeah. But it's extremely difficult to convince people to do that. So
2: if we talk about the macro and you talk about the micro, but of course they're completely interrelated. If we have these intractable problems that are becoming increasingly hard to heal, And some people have their finger on the nuclear button. How do we hear?
1: It's not just that some people have the finger. It's that the people who have the finger don't have the best judgment.
2: Yes, and we're becoming so increasingly polarised, even though what we really want is connection.
1: But seriously, do you really think we are getting more polarised than the Hundred Year War? We often have a tendency to think that these things have never been as bad Mm. before as they are today. Mm. I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the case. People have been polarized inside the community, between people, between nations. There have been wars that lasted forever. I'm not sure we are more polarized. I think that we are more aware of it because we hear more voices. You can hear more people and what they think and what they have to say than ever before because the public square has become global. But the public square has been a ruthless place for a long time in every village where you could be cut, guillotined, hung and everything because you believed something else.
2: Okay. I love it because your perspective is very unique and I'm not sure that many people here know about you. You became incredibly famous for your sex therapy and relational therapy and talking about eroticism, they were all titillating subjects. But prior to that, you had an incredible 20-year career. Just can you
1: tell everybody what you were working on prior to the TED Talk? So I have been a relationship therapist, a family therapist, a systems-oriented therapist, and basically a cross-cultural therapist. And I have studied relationships in transitions. And the kinds of transitions that I was interested in was either refugees or internationals, basically people who move the most, but for very different reasons. And then I was interested in mixed marriages, racial, cultural, and religious intermarriage all over the place, because those people also are in cultural transition, but it's happening in their own living room. Why did I look at it like that and looked at mixed marriages? Because I thought it's an incredible lens Mixed marriages supposedly are meant to be the opposite of polarization. It's people who come together across religion, across race, across language, across class, in ways that would not have been anticipated or accepted by their community, for that matter. So they are disruptors in today's language. And I thought that there is a lot to learn about those people, those families, and especially the next generation. What do we create? Intergenerationally, when we break barriers and total taboos,
2: you've seen a lot that maybe many of us are not exposed to, so
1: we think these ideas are new. So, I speak nine languages. There is something about shifting language that literally takes you elsewhere, and some of the work I do is multilingual, depending on what's in the room. That helps with a real understanding of what are the cultural intricacies that influence. The way we conceptualize relationships, our expectations of relationships, gender roles, hierarchy, intergenerational loyalty, and basically the meaning itself of relationships. The degree to which they are considered central and an organizing principle of our sense of ourselves and our values and the degree to which relationships are actually seen as secondary to task and to the self and to a pursuit of autonomy and self-reliance. That continuum, I think, is very telling for how we navigate relationships. Personal, familial, work, friendship, love, all of that. I'm interested in love and intimacy, but I don't just think it applies to romantic relationships. I think that we've lost a little bit of a context here.
2: I felt that in your amazing podcast on work. It's unbelievable. There is a love and intimacy and so many incredible threads there that are the same as an intimate marriage or relationship that surprised me.
1: Yeah, because everybody goes to work with an official resume called your CV that you put on LinkedIn. And then everybody goes to work with the unofficial resume, which is your relationship history. And that usually doesn't stay at the door. Basically, whenever they say we should bring our whole self to work, I always say we already do. Mm.
2: I'm hearing a thread here that there's nothing new under the sun and that maybe we think things are new because of the circumstances that we're in. Are there new questions and new dynamics coming up post-COVID? Oh, yes,
1: yes. there's okay. so many new things. There's a lot, a lot of new things in the world. I tried yesterday to do a little bit of a summary of how many things have changed. Friendship hasn't changed so much. Sibling relationship hasn't changed so much, but parent-child has. And romantic relationship have literally undergone a major upheaval. But globally, in the broad thing, I think the most important thing to understand is this. In the village, in the tribes that we used to live in or that many other people in the world still live in, relationships are organized around hierarchy, structures, Institutions, religious institutions as they used to be, and roles were very clearly defined. Everybody knew what was their task. Everybody knew whose career mattered and who was going to wake up to feed the baby and who has a right to demand for sex and what the kids should be doing. And all of these things were codified. And that gave us, in the realm of relationship, a lot of clarity and a lot of certainty and just about zero freedom. We have shifted the model and we have shifted it with the urbanization, with the rise of individualism, a lot of things. And we have shifted duty and obligation for options and choice. And all the big decisions that used to be made for us, we now have to make them ourselves. What do I want to do? Where do I want to live? Is this good enough? Is this too bad to stay, but too good to leave? You know, this whole relationship ambivalence. And that gives us a lot of freedom but we are a lot more alone as well. And we have a lot more uncertainty and we are often crippled with self-doubt because the burdens of the self have never been heavier. Because if you have to make all of these decisions and your decisions are no longer guided just by commitments because now they are guided by your feelings, you need to know that what are the true authentic feelings that you need to follow. And that means that you have to know with utter precision the answer to all kinds of questions that are rather complicated. And that is a massive shift in the realm of relationships. Couple that with the fact that everything about relationships used to be tight knots, hard to undo. And now they are loose threads in and out very easily. That's another major difference. And then everything around social life was organized around tradition and stability and continuity. And now it's all about change and disruption and innovation and speed. And if you want to slow down on occasion, you can go and meditate. So for the kind of grasp a little bit of groundedness. But all of that has profoundly changed the way we engage in relationships, let alone the meaning of marriage, the role of sex in relationships, the definition of intimacy, the definition of monogamy, and the meaning of infidelity. And the place of the child in the family. Five of these have been totally transformed.
2: I'm legit exhausted. Like, I need a whiskey at this point.
1: But do you see? Yeah, I I
2: see, but I also feel a lot of people here are in leadership. It's becoming impossible because you're navigating your inner life and having discernment around how to make the right decision, the good decision, when the sands of culture are shifting all the time and we're actually not sure what's real and what's not real, what's been driven by external forces, where morality, ethics, all these things You have to be a tightrope walker and a circus performer to get it right. And so
1: there's an exhaustion. Polarization for me comes directly from that. The more uncertain we are about how things need to be, the more we perform pseudo-certainty, which appears in the form of polarization. Suddenly people pretend like they know and they have the answer and they have the truth. But usually that happens, in fact, when people are very uncertain. This you could see a lot in the pandemic in the beginning of the pandemic in particular.
2: So what's coming into your therapeutic
1: space the most? Right most, now? Right now. Pandemics are relationship accelerators. Basically, they put you in touch with mortality or with life is short. Mm. And they either make you say, what am I waiting for? Let's move in. Let's have a pandemic baby, etc., etc." et, cetera, et cetera. Or what am I waiting for? I'm out of here. I've had it. It's been long enough. Life is short. So we have seen the babies and now we are seeing the wave of divorces and breakups and fundamental shifts in structure from monogamy to polyamory to consent, you know, basically redefining the systems. So that's one thing. We're seeing people coming in that have endured the flatness. Mm. of what needed to be done in confinement when you are in confinement and you were a 100 days in confinement 380 days but you had the longest one stretch was 100 days right new york we had our version but you were really we're special you know i think you're not even realizing yet what you're coming out of you're sitting here in a group next to each other For so long, you couldn't do this. And not only didn't you do that, but when you walked the street, you looked down, you looked away because every person could have been a potential contaminant. And to suddenly change completely, it's so granular how much we had to learn to distance, to choke. And I think a lockdown is the numbing of the erotic inside of us. I often think, those of you who know my work, that we straddle two fundamental sets of human needs. We straddle our need for security and safety, and we straddle our need for freedom and adventure. In our relationship, the essence today is to reconcile these two fundamental needs. But a lockdown basically says everything has to be geared towards safety, security, predictability, dependability, stability, and everything else that is spontaneous, serendipitous, happenstance, curiosity, exploratory discovery basically, the stuff that makes you feel alive. Not the stuff that helps you survive has to be closed off. And when you have that in a relationship for a long time, you go berserk. So people now want to do vacations from the relationship. They want to take a trip away from the partner. They just need air because fire needs air. This has been choked. That's another major thing that is coming in is How do you create the air and find some way to preserve the relationship? Is the relationship able to hold itself while people go and replenish themselves alone? Because the last person they want to do something with is the one that they've been locked up with, seriously. How do you reconnect sexually? How do you bring back desire? That's the next thing. Even if you felt thankful that you had this person and that you went through all of this, not everybody had a sex party. You know... Neither on Zoom nor anywhere else, nor even in play parties that were just as rampant. But some people had the play parties. What? And Say well, more. Of what do you speak? Of what do I speak? What is this? Play Anybody party? would like to. Uh... <laughs> oh my goodness.
2: I need to do more
1: research. <laughs> Does we- that relate to what you see here? Yes. What I
2: just? Well, yes. I think that we're well, not the sex parties, but the burnout. The burnout. I'm sure everybody here. Like me, would love to be working with you consistently on all these questions. My real curiosity is, you are so full of aliveness. It's astonishing and inspiring and wonderful to be around. And I'm gonna drop a name because it's relevant, but I had the privilege of interviewing Gloria Steinem. And she had the same energy as you, which is I expected to meet someone serious. I was very prepared. I had all my questions and I I was stressed. And she felt younger than me. And she was 85 at the time. And it was shocking, that aliveness. And you're a therapist, like many therapists in the audience here, felt not so alive from the work. But previously you told me, I love my work. I love what I do. Can you talk to that? a bit because I want to know the playbook for continuing to tap into aliveness, even when the world's gone mad. And you're at the center of people asking these questions about disconnection and freedom and where to find joy. How do you calibrate yourself when this is the work that you do every day?
1: When I say, and it is a bit of the motto of my work, that the quality of our relationships is what determines the quality of our lives, I live by that. I am here and I'm meeting a friend that I met 32 years ago for one day only in Poland as I was going in 1990 to visit my parents' birth country. This is a very good example to your question. We spend the day walking on the ruins of everything that had been destroyed in our families. And then we went at night to some underground vodka club and we just experienced Eros after experiencing Thanatos. And we drank ourselves through the night and talked forever and have been friends ever since. That is one of the ways I replenish. And I have a lot of fun. (laughs) In the pandemic, I replenished by having a film club with friends on four continents, having a book club having a swimming group, having a yoga group of friends that I put together that met four times a week till today and has never missed a class. And it was all my friends in various parts of the world and people could come in and out of it. And everybody emerged as a yoga teacher, me included. But it was an amazing thing. You know, four times a week, eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock on the weekend, you opened the Zoom and you saw my friends in Paris, in Brussels, in Tel Aviv, so I organize things I'm interested in through people, and that feeds me a lot. I read, I go to movies, I love the theater. I really don't work all the time. <laughs> the things I do in work are also often very pleasurable. I'm very curious, and come to a thing like this is like, okay, what's the anthropological field trip tonight? Who am I going to meet? What do these people have to say? How do they think? What's relevant? You know, it's a very strange thing after all. Some of you have listened to Where Should We Begin? And you know me, I don't know you. You've been listening, you trust me a little bit, but I have no idea. So it's this very interesting thing of first date where you've already done a lot more research on me than I have on you. So that's how I replenish. I have a family. I was here with two of my kids. One of them left. I have one son still. My husband was prevented from traveling the day before we came, but it would have been an amazing combo of family trip after the pandemic and my work. I mix and match a lot. That's what keeps me going. What I did work-wise, I think the biggest shift career-wise is simply to move from working primarily In the clinical field, which I still am, I practice two days a week, but I was primarily in the clinical field. I was teaching, supervising, I was at NYU and all of that, to saying, I want to take relational health and turn it into a global public health campaign. I always thought that what happens in my office should be known outside and I didn't know how to lower the four walls and how to open the door. And I wrote books and I did talking, but the podcast, because it's never patients. We have 6,000 applicants for next season. Wow. For 10 episodes from all over the globe. That allows me to tell stories. And I want these stories to be bridges so that other people don't feel as alone as they listen. I don't know if I'd even think of it anymore as just clinical. It's art. It's taken on a whole other... You know, so to be creative is probably one of the most ways you can be alive, is to be creative. And that means doing things that I know nothing about. Like I had never listened to a podcast when I created Where Should We Begin? I've never worked in corporate, but I did a podcast on how it's worked, And then I created a game during the pandemic, a game of stories, Where Should We Begin? And I have never owned a card game. And by the way, I wrote Mating in Captivity and I never took a single course on sexuality. That came after. So there is something about doing things that I know nothing about. You don't compare because you have no reference. And there's something very scary and very freeing about not knowing where you've just plunged. But you have a
2: foundation of knowledge and inquiry that is incredibly solid. It feels, even with you now, That you're always in a playful curiosity. Yeah. You're always in a spot where you're waiting for what's going to arrive in the moment. That's
1: called aliveness. That is the definition of eroticism. I think that so much of the work is on trauma because I come from trauma. It's about dealing with the trauma and not about dealing with the erotic recovery. It's one thing to take the cast off the arm, but if you don't use this arm and don't teach it how to move again and feel free and express itself and touch and be touched and experience connection, then what have you really done? And I know that there's quite a few other survivors and children of survivors of the Holocaust and of any other genocide, for that matter, in this crowd. The people who made it understood that somehow naturally. They sang in the camps. They sang in the cotton fields. They write poetry of refugees. They stay connected to longing, yearning, art, hope, possibility. That's why they're around. The others smoked a cigarette, which my father always said, the day you saw somebody smoke a cigarette, you knew that they had traded bread for a little stick, and that meant they were on their way out. And I think that when you say eroticism, it's so fluff like that. People instantly want to think about sex. The mystical of the sense of the word is aliveness. What do you do in the face of adversity? Numbness, flatness, hopelessness, lockdown, all of that. What
2: a magnificent salve for the place the world is in now. And I've thought about our last conversation for the decade since, I think it's been. Wow. When you talked about there were those who came out of the camps alive And there were those who came out not dead.
1: So I'm writing Mating in Captivity, and my husband is a trauma expert or trauma psychologist, but he deals with large-scale psychosocial trauma, big things, pandemics, shootings, capsized ferry boats in Korea, burning factories in Bangladesh, things like that. And he was working with victims of torture and political violence. And I asked him one day, how do you know when people come out of it? Like, what does it look like? Somebody who comes back from having been in solitary confinement. We were working with Chilean refugees at the time as well. And we both landed on when people are once again able to create or able to play, which involves able to be curious because all those things are outward. You can only do them if you feel safe enough that nothing bad is going to happen here because you've looked away for a second. You're not on guard. You have to be able to experience a minimum of carefreeness or unself consciousness to experience pleasure. That was what he said. And then I said, and this is in the middle of writing a book, which at that point still I thought was a book about desire and sexuality. And I said, this is so interesting. I come from Antwerp, in the Jewish community, is all Holocaust survivors, Melbourne being the largest community of. Holocaust survivors in the world, and I remember saying, wow, there were two groups of people among my friends. There were those who you went to their house, and the curtains were down, and there was plastic on the couches, but the main thing was that you couldn't speak loud, and you couldn't laugh loud, and you couldn't cry loud, and you certainly couldn't experience pleasure because you lived tethered to the ground, fearful and not trusting. Because the world is a dangerous place. And I thought those are people who survived, but they never came back to life. And then there were the others. They were my parents as well. I was really lucky in that sense. And these people, they also had all the same experiences, but something in them made them experience the erotic as an antidote to death. And so they knew how to keep themselves alive in the face of. It's not like they thought the world was a better place than the others. But they just went ahead with it anyway. They figured we didn't survive for nothing. And they were counterphobic, so to speak. Meaning they took risks as if nothing can happen all the way while knowing that stuff can happen at any moment. Living with that kind of contradiction. And that is where my whole theory of eroticism then began to emerge. So extraordinary.
2: My sister's somewhere in the audience here and our dad was born in a refugee camp straight after the Holocaust. And sometimes we've asked each other, like, what
1: were they doing having a baby in a despised oh, person's it's very camp? clear what they were doing. Yeah. It's so clear that when people came out of the camps or out of the woods or out of the sewage canals or wherever they had survived, the first important thing they wanted to do is know that they were still human. And for that, having a child said i'm still human and out of me comes a baby another monster because i have been so demonized vilified and degraded that is such a powerful symbol of survival it's never been said to them how fantastic this was they were miracle children after that it comes with a big burden but uh,
2: <laughs> it's amazing your work is a balm for all of our souls and I know that everybody here is enormously grateful for what you do and the way that you help us deepen and, and ask better questions of ourselves and each other.
0: That was Esther Perel. And you can see the video of this chat with extended audience questions over at our YouTube channel. Go to Esther's website to order her new game, Where Should We Begin?, and get across all of her brilliant books and podcasts. Thanks for your company. We'll catch you next time on the Dumbo Feather podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Good and Proper, the content and communications agency helping purpose driven organizations tell stories that drive positive change. Learn more. Over at good